I'm Jake Lopperuk, Senior Counsel at the Constitution Project at POGO. We're hoping this is going to be the first of several briefings and events focused on examining how to preserve constitutional rights during um, this emergency situation. Uh, for this event, we're going to be focusing on restrictions on travel and limits on public movement. So this is a very brief um, description of uh, what we're seeing right now, numerous states and localities are already enacting very serious limits on travel and on public movement. Over a dozen states have now restricted entry um, into their state by requiring individuals entering the state to go into a 14-day quarantine. Some have made this universal for anyone entering the state, while others have limited the rule to travelers from certain uh, hotspot areas like New York or Louisiana. And the vast majority of states have issued stay-at-home orders for non-essential personnel. Um, and activities. And these various orders and rules are being enforced to varying degrees. Some are effectively self-enforced and some are much more strict in terms of government engagement. So join us today to discuss these and their implications. We have um, two really great panelists. Uh, first, Professor Loris Gostin is director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law and university professor at Georgetown Law, as well as the director of the World Health Organization Collaborating Center on national and global health law. And Liza Goitian is the director of the Liberty National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Liza is a foremost expert on constitutional rights and civil liberties, emergency powers, and national security surveillance law. So just to kick things off, I wanna kind of give uh, each of our participants a sort of general um, question to queue up the discussion. So um, I was hoping Liza, you could start by um, talking a little bit about what constitutional rights and civil liberties um, the full range of them that are put in jeopardy by travel and movement restrictions. Um, and then Professor Gostin, if you could follow up by discussing sort of, given the range of po uh, policies from states limiting entry to stay-at-home orders, what are the most likely measures that are going to be effective in this scenario? And what factors are going to influence efficacy and effectiveness? Thanks, Jake. And thanks very much for, for having this um, presentation, which I think is obviously very timely, very important. Um, I'm going to bite off the piece of it that focuses on some of the restrictions states have put or some of the rules that states have created for people coming into the state to, to be quarantined. And, uh, and I'm going to start by saying that there is, in fact, a constitutional right to engage in interstate travel. Uh, so, so far, no state has entirely closed its borders. Um, and not allowed people from out of state to travel into that state. Um, instead, as you said, Jake, uh, you know, more than a dozen states have enacted uh, requirements that people coming in from out of state uh, have to undergo a 14-day quarantine. This is different from a stay-at-home order because they don't get to go outside to exercise or go shopping or, or any of that. Um, I would say about half the states at this point are imposing this requirement on people coming in from hotspots, uh, places like New York, places with high rates of infection. Uh, and the other half are imposing it on anyone uh, coming in from out of state. But even though this is really a quarantine requirement rather than a travel ban, it still implicates the constitutional right to travel because uh, it imposes a burden on people as a direct result of their decision to travel between states. So it's almost like a kind of tax on interstate travel. Um, now, the constitutional right to interstate travel is, is a bit of a tricky one uh, because the courts have been extremely unclear uh, in terms of where in the Constitution uh, this, this right derives from. And they, there's a, there are a bunch of different parts of the Constitution um, that, that it 
seemingly has its roots in. So some decisions suggest that it's an individual right that's rooted in the due process clause of the fifth or 14th amendment. So it's essentially a basic liberty um, that the government cannot take away from you. Um, some decisions say that it's one of the privileges and immunities that states are, re are required to give to people from other states. Um, and then still other decisions suggest that this right derives from the uh, sort of the, what's called the dormant commerce clause. So the, the federal government under the commerce clause, commerce clause has, has the right to regulate commerce between states. And if states are regulating interstate travel, that's a form of interstate commerce. And they are essentially stepping on the toes of the federal government's rights here. So, you know, depending on where in the Constitution you locate the rights, there might be some differences in terms of how what's allowed, what's not, how this plays out. But in general, courts are going to look at uh, burdens on interstate travel uh, through the lens of, of strict scrutiny. They're going to look to see whether the state has a compelling interest uh, and whether it is <clears throat> furthering that interest through the least restrictive means available. In general, the states are going to have a much better chance in courts if, they, if their restrictions apply um, to everyone coming in from out of state, including the state's own residents. So residents returning from travel would also be subject to the quarantine requirement. Uh, that avoids a discrimination against non-state residents that is the heart of what the Privileges and Immunities Clause is supposed to uh, prevent. And I guess lastly, I just want to flag that uh, restrictions on interstate travel uh, can affect other constitutional rights as well. So for example, um, <clears throat> the First Amendment right to association. Anytime you burden someone's travel to another state, that is imposing a burden on their ability to associate with people in that other state. Um, there are also some really complex questions in terms of uh, states that have designated uh, abortion clinics or uh, places that sell firearms to be uh, non-essential services. And so uh, if you are in a state where you have to go to a different state uh, to get an abortion or to purchase a gun right now, um, you are being forced to pay a pretty significant price for exercising your constitutional right. So that's, I'll just set the table with, with, with that and uh, I'll stop there. Okay, first of all, that was such an erudite and and spectacular explanation. I, it it kind of got me at the end with the comparing abortion and guns, but other than that, I really, I really loved uh, your, the sophistication of your answer. Um, Thank you. Uh, and I think, I'm a fan, by the way. <laughs> thanks. Uh, you know, I think that, you know, you did the right thing by separating um, really kind of three things parsing out. I mean, one is uh, stay-at-home orders. Um, those operate solely within a state. Um, probably if there's not a lot of draconian uh, enforcement of it in an emergency, my guess is that the courts are going to uphold it. Although um, I do worry a lot about vulnerable people um, and uh, who, who lack the means to, to gain their essential needs. Um, and then travel restrictions. Uh, so as you say, you know, what's happening with the quarantine orders are not formal restrictions on travel, they, but they are a burden on travel for sure. Um, 
I think uh, if the governors were to absolutely say nobody from another state can come, I have no doubt that the courts would strike that down, probably under the dormant commerce um, clause, as you say. Um, the interesting question is whether the president could restrict travel among the states. Um, and for that, um, I'd love your opinion. Um, the regulating interstate commerce is exclusively uh, given by the Constitution to Congress, not to the president. And so the question is, is whether the Public Health Service Act gives the president authority to do that. It allows the president to make provisions to avoid um, transmission of an infectious disease between states, but it doesn't mention travel. So my guess is it's not specific enough, but I'd love to uh, hear what you say. On quarantine um, orders, certainly every state has the power to quarantine somebody if they have good reason to believe that they've been exposed um, to a dangerous infection and then to quarantine them for the period of time of the uh, incubation period. Um, but that requires an individualized risk assessment. And if you're applying it sweepingly to anybody who comes in from another state, it seems to me it's too generalized. You don't have enough specific grounds to demonstrate that this person is dangerous. So say, say you, any traveler from New York, um, which is the current epicenter, um, well, what if they were coming from upstate New York where you had a very low rate? Or what if they were isolating themselves and, and just coming in to visit um, a family member? Um, so I think that these kind of generalized uh, quarantines, depending upon how they operate, uh, do seem to go too far and they would violate even the state public health statute that requires some kind of individualized risk assessment. And while the, the Supreme Court hasn't really, in modern times, um, made its views known about quarantine, it has done for other civil confinement, particularly civil commitment. And it's called that a, a massive uh, deprivation of liberty. And so you're exactly right. Requiring least restrictive alternative compelling state interest would be, um, I think, the, you know, the right thing. Let me just finish by saying, you know, one of the things that I've really been pondering a lot is, is that we're, 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 we're in a once in a century event. None of us have ever seen this. Um, my dad was born during the 1918 <laughs> flu pandemic, but even he was too young to remember it. Um, so when this is all over, um, you know, what will be the state's, state of our civil liberties? What will be the state of our human rights? Will it be the new normal? Um, if at any time there was an infectious disease outbreak, would we completely snap back to draconian methods? Um, and those things worry me a lot. I don't think there's been a lot of discussion in the public space about the importance of human rights and civil liberties. Okay. Thanks so much. Um, so that actually, I think, segues very well into the next question I was um, hoping to have you guys take on Precedent is obviously always a really big idea for legal real rulings and interpretations. It's also a way that we develop policies. Just we look at what works, what doesn't work, what seems reasonable. I mean, is there any precedent for 
this type of travel restrictions, stay-at-home orders, things like that, um, in U.S. law, either at the state or national level, previously that we can bear on, or are we really in, um, you know, uncharted waters as far as what we're doing today? Um, which one of us did you want to take that issue? Um, whoever wants to hop on. Did you want to, or shall I? Larry, why don't you? Why don't you start? Okay. Um, well, you know, as I said, you know, with you know, we've had a lot of experience with individualized quarantines. Um, so uh, an individualized quarantine, you know, we've done it for multi-drug resistant tuberculosis and a whole range of other areas. That's certainly not um, uncharted territory. Um, and so public health statutes allow you to isolate somebody that actually is, uh, tests uh, positive for the diagnostic test of COVID-19 or some other um, infectious disease. Um, for the period of time that they're infectious. Um, and that if you're exposed, but not yet positive, um, you can be quarantined if, it's, if, if there's significant risk to the public. Um, but I think we are on uncharted territory about the, the sheer scale of what we're seeing. Um, I don't think there's ever been a time, at least in my understanding of our public health history since um, the 1918 great influenza pandemic. There you did see a lot of um, you know, cordon sanitaires, which is a, a guarded area, which we haven't even talked about, that, you know, a perimeter where you can't leave or go. Um, there were, you know, they weren't calling them that, but there were stay-at-home orders. But to my knowledge, none of those were tested in the courts. Um, there, during the um, uh, during the plague in 1900, um, the, there was a San Francisco uh, federal district court that looked at a, um, they called it a quarantine, but really it's a cordon sanitaire in, in an area of San Francisco. And the court struck it down. Its major reason for striking it down was because it was um, discriminatory. It basically applied almost exclusively to Chinese uh, heritage people um, in the San Francisco area. And, and the court famously said, you know, the, the, the government acted with an, an, an evil eye and an unequal hand. Um, so certainly um, discriminatory uh, quote on sanitaries would be right. But I don't even think there's been any, um, at least to my knowledge, unless you can correct me, any major court decisions about kind of what, what we colloquially call a mass quarantine, um, you know. And it would be interesting, you know, we're thinking of stay-at-home orders, but what if, what if a court like uh, had to look at something like um, a mass quarantine of an apartment building or a dormitory? Um, you know, we're in universities, and so we, 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 can, we can appreciate the significance of that. That happened, you know, a fair amount in, in Singapore, Hong Kong, China, um, and even Ontario during SARS. But to my knowledge, that's never been tested um, significantly in the U.S. court. And I would just echo that and say that in general with individual liberties, when courts look at individual liberties, they tend to look at some sort of individualized uh, rationale that the government has for whatever restriction that it's imposing. And so they want to see some evidence 
that that particular person uh, is dangerous before that person's liberty can be, before that person can be confined. And the question is, how would that play out in a situation where you are seeing non-individualized determinations, uh, including both quarantines, which is what we're seeing when uh, states are, are requiring quarantines for people coming in from out of state that is not based on any individualized determination about the people coming in from out of state. <clears throat> it's also a factor to some degree in some of the stay at home orders because those as well um, are generally mass orders across the state for anybody who is not you know, working in an essential service and essential business is supposed to stay at home except for certain exceptions. And that is obviously a serious deprivation of liberty that is being with no sort of individualized justification for, for individual people. And so I think it's a, it's a fascinating question uh, how and whether the Bill of Rights can accommodate this kind of mass deprivation of liberty. Is it as simple as saying, well, look, if the government's interest is compelling enough, and there truly is no less restrictive means than to tell everybody in the state to stay home. Maybe it's the same balancing test. Uh, maybe not. I mean, maybe there's some reason why uh, you can never have a non-individualized assessment when it comes to the Fifth Amendment liberty, Fifth Amendment liberties. So it, it's a really interesting question. And I think there truly is no precedent that we can point to for this. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. There really, um, there really isn't any precedent. Um, one interesting um, idea that I've been thinking about, but I don't think it was ever tested. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was never tested. You know, the federal government um, also has quarantine powers, but they're much more limited than the states. Um, they, the, the quarantine rule that the CDC operates um, in its quarantine uh, unit um, really has its presence at the, at the nation's border. Um, and it's very, very rarely been used. It's before COVID, um, I think, and I've confirmed this with the CDC, that it's never been, the federal government has never exercised that power since, um, for another, for 50 years. And that was a single suspected case of smallpox. But now it's used the federal quarantine powers quite extensively. Sometimes it's individualized, but very often it's broad. So for example, every evacuee, American citizen evacuee from Wuhan and Hubei province in China um, was subject to a 14-day quarantine. Every person that was evacuated from the uh, Princess Diamond cruise ship um, was also um, uh, confined. Now, that those were real hotspots. Um, and so the question is, is, you know, would the courts have upheld those? But it was never challenged. I don't know quite why ACLU or someone else didn't. Um, but, um, and I don't know what the result would be. I mean, if you had somebody coming in from an area where you couldn't do an individualized risk assessment because you have no reliable way of knowing whether they've been exposed, but you have a high likelihood that they could have been because it was such a rampant hot zone, whether the courts would give um, some deference there. Um, so so <clears throat> if I could jump in, one of the interesting things about the responses we're seeing here in the United States is that many of the more um, 
many of the measures that intrude more on liberties that we've seen um, are in some ways a direct result of the fact that we are not prepared as a nation for this kind of pandemic in the sense of having, for example, uh, or having been able to quickly produce testing. Because if testing kits were available, widely available, and you could determine who had COVID and who did not have COVID, then there wouldn't be the necessity uh, for stay-at-home orders. I mean, if, even if there were sort of antibody tests that were widely available right now, and you could see who had had COVID and who hadn't had COVID, and people who had the antibodies could go out of their houses, and they could be at work, and they could be keeping the economy going. So a lot of the uh, more liberty um, impacting measures are a direct response of a failure to take steps that um, would have been more effective sooner and could have prevented the need for some of those measures. Yeah, that's true. Although um, the antibody tests weren't developed and they're still not quite um, uh, where we need them to be. And the other diagnostic tests that were being used um, were, you know, weren't um, sensitive enough, that is, that they couldn't pick up um, cases of COVID, particularly among asymptomatic but still infectious. But I do agree with you, the United States has been very, very poorly prepared. And it's shocking because, um, you know, I, I was actually in my living room with somebody from you know, a very um, well-known anchor from a, from a national television station in mid-December. And I said to him, you know, uh, I just, I won't give you his name. I, I said, you know, I, I just heard from my friends in Wuhan that there's a novel coronavirus. I'm really worried. And he just said, pass the cookies. You know, he could have had, <laughs> could have had a Nobel a Pulitzer Prize. Um, but we had, the point is, is we did have a lot of notice and we didn't do very much with that notice. The other point I just wanted to make is that the most aggressive responses, responses that we have available to us, legally speaking, belong to the state and local governments right now. They don't belong mm -hmm. to the federal government. There is no ability for the president, you know, much as he might think otherwise or wish otherwise, to impose a national lockdown order. He can't do that. Nor can he do the opposite. He can't order states to reopen all of their businesses if he decides, okay, enough is enough, the cure is worse than the disease or whatever he was saying before he seemed to change his mind. Um, that's not something that he has the authority to do either. And, you know, to go back to, to an earlier point that Professor Gostin raised, I don't read the Public Health Services Act, Service Act as giving the president the authority, uh, as written anyway, to, to shut down interstate travel um, because it is specific enough about what it does allow in, in terms of, you know, quarantining interstate travelers. They have to be reasonably believed uh, to, to be infected in terms of, uh, preventing the spread of interstate disease. There's some very specific language about, uh, or examples, and the examples are things like inspection, fumigation, disinfection, sanitation, pest extermination. None of those give any indication that Congress had in mind the president's ability uh, to stop interstate travel. So while in theory, I think probably Congress could pass a law that would allow the president to do that, they haven't done that yet. And unlike in uh, wartime, uh, or, uh, you know, sensitive foreign relations, the president does not have any inherent constitutional authorities here. This is, this is not one of those areas. This is public health, and public health is very much committed to state and local governments. And so if Congress hasn't authorized the president to do something in this area, he can't do it.
that is absolutely a spot on and, uh, and a very, very important point. Um, the police powers, as we call them, public health powers, are squarely within state and local governments. Um, and the president does not have the power um, to, to, to go into a state and order it open or order it shut. And the public are not getting that message. So um, top to another question. So many possibly all courts closed right now. Is there even really a mechanism for challenging the constitutionally constitutionality of um, these various types of orders? Or on a smaller scale, if the opportunity for an individual, is there an opportunity for individuals to challenge any fines, penalties, or other legal action they might face um, for violating stay-at-home orders or travel restrictions? Why don't you take that? Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, the courts, courts are operating, they're just operating differently. And so, uh, you know, courts are delaying their schedules, they're doing some hearings by Zoom. Um, so uh, things are, things move, they just move a whole lot slower. Uh, but of course, part of that is going to be triage. And so, um, you know, if somebody is in fact um, confined involuntarily and they're police, you know, ringing the house and preventing them from leaving, then I think their case is going to be heard in, you know, in pretty short order. Uh, we're not there yet. We haven't seen that. And so to the extent people might be challenging a fee or a fine they receive, you know, that can probably wait. Um, and so, uh, we, and I'm not trying to downplay the importance of, the, of that lawsuit or those constitutional questions. I'm just saying realistically, uh, yes, that case will get heard. It just might not get heard uh, as soon as it would have otherwise. Another question kind of on those lines, are there any legal challenges that have been filed or um, seem to be in preparation for current um, stay-at-home orders? I know there, there have been a couple of lawsuits um, related to the state travel restrictions, especially those targeting certain states, but um, have, have either of you seen lawsuits for stay-at-home orders? I'm sure I have. I, yeah, I'm trying to remember. That guy who had a big party and got arrested, did, it, did he file a lawsuit? I, I'm not remembering. I will say this. I, I'm not going to pretend to know the answer because I can't remember. But um, we'll say that there was something that came up earlier and there was a question of, hey, you know, why the ACLU hadn't filed a, a lawsuit yet. I think the reason we're not seeing all of these unprecedented measures that are being imposed at the state and local level challenged in court in droves and through class actions and all of that is because people understand that these measures or a lot of them anyway, are necessary. This is a level so far of uh, restriction on freedoms that people are willing to tolerate um, in, the, in the interest of staying healthy, in the interest of having our, our broader community stay healthy. And I think to me as a lawyer, it's remarkable <laughs> how, how little litigation there has been. And I contrast that with when the president declared a national emergency for building the border wall uh, you know, a year ago. And the day he did that, multiple lawsuits were, were filed. A year later, we're still, there's still debate over whether it's not, whether it was an emer a real emergency or not a real emergency. And it's a political debate more than anything, because factually, it's not an emergency. So for the coronavirus, you don't hear debates over whether or not this is a real emergency. And you don't see you know, lawsuits filed right and left in response to these measures. And I think because there's a broad understanding that we are in an unprecedented, unprecedented situation and that there is going to need to be some level of sacrifice in terms of our, 
even potentially our civil liberties in terms of the measures that um, are going to be required. Now, having said all that, I think it's incredibly important that people don't assume that the most effective measures are going to be the ones that, that take away their freedoms the most and that they don't willingly hand over all their freedoms to the government potentially permanently uh, just because we are in a pandemic. I think it's very important um, to stay vigilant and to make sure that whatever measures are being imposed are measures that public health experts are recommending. You know, if public health experts aren't recommending it, there's, not a re there's no reason to do it. And if it's a measure that actually restricts civil liberties and it's not being called for by public health experts, that is a, it should be a non-starter. Um, but to the extent that, that public health experts are recommending it, just making sure that these measures are as narrowly tailored as they can be, that there are protections for people's liberties and rights built in, things like judicial re review uh, of quarantine orders, even though it might have to be after the fact, and that none of these restrictions last any longer than necessary to address the pandemic, and that when it's over, we have a bit of a, of a, uh, uh, a debrief on whether the laws in place have, have the protections that we would want them to have so the next time this happens, knock on wood, hopefully won't happen for a long time, um, we know that we are protected by, by our laws, which I think right now, um, unfortunately, is not necessarily the case. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I've often said that, you know, you know, good science makes good ethics, makes good law, and it starts with the science. So just to kind of reinforce your point, uh, the, uh, you know, if you remember back um, to the quarantines that were put on for returning health workers from uh, West Africa during the Ebola outbreak. There were quarantines, um, the states were saying that they were needed to protect the public's health, but the public health community and, and, the, and the scientists were saying that it's actually counterproductive. Um, uh, Donald Trump, before he was president, called for such quarantines. But in those cases, they were entirely inappropriate. In this case, so long as it's proportionate, as you say, the least duration, the least restrictive, um, and it's got strong scientific support, that's probably is indeed the explanation why we're not seeing a lot more judicial challenge and public debate over it. So, um, follow up on this, I, I wanna actually just jump in with a question, um, you know, following up on Liza's point about looking towards you know, giving due diligence to the idea of protecting public health. I mean, I think that definitely becomes sort of a default for a lot of the public in times like this. Um, and it can be easy to forget sort of what we should be worried about from the civil liberties side. So I was hoping you could both um, kind of talk about what, what exactly are the full range of rights that, that will be affected, not just in a legal sense, but in, in a very, um, you know, human and practical sense, um, you know, including, but beyond that, the full range of rights beyond travel. Um, that are implicated by um, by state travel restrictions and stay-at-home orders. So we'll autonomy, liberty, travel, movement, potentially um, uh, religious or or uh, free speech or assembly rights under the First Amendment. That's to say, I think those rights are implicated. Not that they would necessarily trump, um, say. Uh, uh, bans on on public gatherings um, because I think they're content neutral those kinds of bans and also what we haven't talked about of course is privacy 
um, because in many other countries, there's been a lot of intrusive surveillance to enforce these kinds of um, movement restrictions, um, and you know, inclu including um, gathering data from your, your um, cell phone um, about where your movements are and who you've been in contact with. Um, so I think those are kind of the, you know, among the list of rights, there are, it's a long list and depends upon what the measure is um, uh, as to whether it, whether it sufficiently implicates those rights uh, without justification so that it would be unconstitutional. And I would just add to that that I think the greatest concern is that any of these uh, extraordinary measures um, could then become the new normal um, in that people get used to them and people yeah. use the notion that, oh, hey, the government actually is authorized to prohibit gatherings of more than X number of people. Well, yes, but only under some pretty extraordinary circumstances. And I worry, I mean, you saw President Trump uh, comparing coronavirus to the seasonal flu right up until it became, you know, just too idiotic to, to eat for him even to continue that, that claim. Um, and you do worry because, you know, the seasonal flu kills a lot of people. Um, so could we start to see, you know, once people get uh, socialized this idea that governments have this power, then, you know, could we start to see governments, you know, maybe a little more ready to use that power. And maybe next time it's not the coronavirus, it's the flu. Um, or it's some other virus that maybe just doesn't present the sort of unique, or it's probably not unique, but the, the, the kinds of dangers that, that, that COVID-19 presents. And so I think we're going to have to be extremely careful, extremely vigilant that we not allow this event, this time in our history to break down the very, very important barriers that we have put in between government uh, and powers the government should not have in ordinary times. Yeah, I think that's well spoken, Liza. Um, the, the, um, if I can just broaden this out, even though we're talking about United States constitutional law, just to indulge me about the global situation right now, um, because we, we, we've seen unprecedented deprivations of liberty, human rights, whatever you would call them in a particular country that we've never seen before. Um, um, uh, Prime Minister Modi in India um, has literally confined you know, 1.4 billion people. Um, when it, when uh, China was acting, I always said, and maybe wrongly, um, this could only happen in China. Um, uh, but China did use particularly intrusive um, forms of you know, citizen informers and, and, and uh, everybody, everybody's cell phone was tracked. It was really quite intrusive. Um, but the World Health Organization has praised China. Um, it's traditionally been very much against travel bans, uh, but not this time. Um, and so not only are we seeing potential new normal in the United States, but I worry about what this is saying about how we would interpret and apply the international health regulations, for example, um, uh, because the, the international health regulations, it's, it's one of the two major WHO treaties and that governs global health security. Um, basically, I've often called it a balancing dynamic. It balances public health um, with human rights, with travel and trade. 
but we're not hearing very much about the human rights and travel and trade um, from WHO and from other international bodies. Now, maybe it's because, um, as Liza said, this is just so unprecedented, but maybe um, uh, you know, it might last until the next epidemic. Um, and, and I do worry about that considerably. So it seems like a kind of overall good practice you guys are indicating for policymakers, reporters that run tackling these issues in different ways is that we should be thinking about, you know, does this seem reasonable? Does this raise risks um, and potential harms? Not just in the context of um, what's happening right now with all these, you know, really scary public health consequences bearing down, but, you know, um, might we see those harms or worry about those harms if this situation came up, you know, on a regular basis on, on a yearly basis for one reason or another? Well, I mean, I, I think it's not hard to spot the things that need to trigger vigilance because they're not subtle, right? I mean, when the, when the state and local governments say that businesses have to close down or you can't have more than five people standing together and having a conversation or, you know, non-essential travel is, is prohibited. I mean, it's pretty clear um, what would in ordinary time, which of these measures would in ordinary times raise flags <laughs> in, terms of, in terms of the civil liberties. I think the, the point that at least I was trying to make is you should not assume that simply because we are in the middle of a pandemic that those civil liberties concerns completely go away or are automatically trumped by the, the interest in the pandemic. There are a lot of other steps along the way in the analysis before um, it makes sense to say, okay, you know, this, this, is some, this is a real emergency. Sometimes in emergencies, there, there has to be some kind of uh, sacrifice on the, uh, on, of whatever of liberties or whatever the case may be, um, economy, you know, um, but not to default to that, to, to, be, to be vigilant, to be thoughtful about uh, which of these measures um, should, in both directions, right? To be thoughtful in terms of, um, you know, not automatically assuming that it's fine and that, you know, luckily our government is here to protect us and they're doing all the right things and we're not gonna ask any questions. Uh, but at the same time, not to have sort of a knee-jerk response of, but wait a minute, I have a right to, you know, go out and assemble and I have a freedom of association. And that means if I want to hang out with 500 of my buddies in the park, I should be able to do that. Um, I think this, this requires nuance, thought, um, a principled approach. And I think, you know, we, we've been trying to articulate some of those principles here today. It has to be driven by the science. It has to be proportionate. It can't last any longer uh, than necessary. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's others you could put in there as, in, as well, I'm sure. But. Yeah, and, and in fact, I would, I would worry that if any declaration of an emergency by the president or by a governor would automatically in the future trigger these kinds of um, uh, ideas. Because I think this is, we have to think of this in the way it actually is, which is a once in a century event. Now that, you know, the fact that it statistically happens once in every century, which we've been saying for a long time, doesn't tell us, doesn't say that it's not gonna happen again for another hundred years. It could happen next year but it's unlikely. And so simply declaring an emergency, I don't think should waive these fundamental rights. Um, we are in unprecedented times. We have kind of a combination of perfect storm um, in the sense that we have a novel virus, you know, uh, 
and like MERS or um, SARS because they were both novel coronaviruses. Um, but you have them in ways that are as if not more transmissible than seasonal influenza. And potentially, we don't know the exact amount, 10 times more deadly than uh, seasonal influ influenza. And there's still a lot we don't know about this virus. So given all of that and, and the overwhelming consensus of public health opinion that we, we have kind of beyond containment, and now we need to do population-based mitigation, um, may give us a reason to do certain things now, but I would be horrified um, if uh, this became the new normal, or even if we, even if in, a, in another kind of different lesser emergency, we thought that this was okay. Um, we have a couple more questions um, in the queue, and just as a reminder, um, especially for all the reporters on, if you have any questions, um, just uh, type them in, in the chat function, it'll send them along, or click the raise your hand function. Um, could you guys uh, elaborate on the dormant intercommerce argument and, and what that would look like? Why don't you go, Liza? I mean, you're, I, mean I, I can do it, but you do it more expertly than me. Well, uh, well, I'll tell you what I know, and, and, and frankly, I was in no way an expert on the Commerce Clause dormant or otherwise um, before any of this. Um, you know, my expertise is in emergency powers, and, and um, through that window, I've become familiar with a lot of other sort of legal frameworks around, the, uh, around coronavirus. But um, the, the Commerce Clause is essentially the power that gives um, the constitutional provision that gives the federal government, the president, the uh, power to... Um, sorry, not the president, the Congress, excuse me, to uh, regulate commerce uh, among the states. And um, the, the, and that, that can mean lots of things. And it, once upon a time, it actually was fairly literal in terms of regulating commerce between the states um, or among the states. Uh, over time, it has become an incredibly elastic concept that basically means any kind of activity that happens anywhere within the nation that uh, could be construed as having an effect outside of that state um, would somehow fall within the Commerce Clause. And it's, it's been uh, a major uh, license for the federal government, for, for Congress to legislate uh, in areas um, that you know, sometimes look like areas that might ordinarily fall within what you'd expect the states to be doing and things like police powers and such. And it, 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 is, not, it is not endlessly elastic. Uh, there are still some limits on it, but it is quite broad. And, what makes it even broader is this, this reverse dormant commerce clause interpretation, which is essentially that if state governments do anything that has a, a negative impact on interstate commerce, um, then that is sort of intruding on Congress's constitutional authority uh, to, to regulate uh, commerce between the states. So <clears throat> what that means in practice, and, and I'm very soon going to be out of my depth here, but I'll tell you what I do know, which is that, um, Measures that states take that expressly um, sort of discriminate against other states, and this is similar to how it works in the privileges and immunities context, but if a state is uh, acting in ways that privilege state businesses, for example, over out-of-state businesses, that is going to be immediately suspect under, under the dormant commerce clause. If, on the other hand, the state is shutting down its own businesses as well, for example, as well as not allowing 
you know, import their, you know, other companies to truck their goods into the state or whatever the case may be. I'm not finding a great analogy, but the point is that the state is being consistent um, and is not discriminating against out of state entities. Um, if there is still a significant impact on interstate commerce, even if it isn't sort of a direct bar by the state on interstate commerce, then um, you are, the, the court is going to require sort of a fit once again between the state's interest and how and you know how broad or how narrow the state's measure is. Um, and that's what I can tell you. Yeah, I'll just add to that. I mean, I think that the, uh, the Supreme Court for, you know, since the since Roosevelt's time has been highly permissive uh, and saw a very expansive role for uh, Congress to regulate uh, interstate commerce. And uh, Liza's right, it was, it was very, very broadly applied. Um, the, the, the current Supreme Court um, under Roberts has been more, is, is been uh, cutting back on that um, in ways that are not always quite favorable to what I believe in, like uh, with the Affordable Care Act, um, uh, uh, Robert's tiebreaker basically made very little sense to me. He basically said, well, um, Congress doesn't have power on, uh, to enact the ACA under the commerce power. But that seems really strange because one-seventh of the U.S. economy goes to healthcare and the supplies, medic, everything's going back and forth. But then said that it was the taxing power, and and the court, of course, is now poised to be look look again at that at that taxing power. Um, so I think you know, yes, it's it's very very broad. Um, I, the way I would interpret the dormant commerce clause is that yes. I think Liza's right. The state has the absolute right under its police powers to close business, close businesses or change business operations, regulate businesses, health, safety, and other um, measures. Um, and applying that to any business, whether, whether the business is multi-state, doesn't matter. Um, if somebody was going to bring in a company was going to bring in goods from somewhere else, I would find it difficult to think that the court would say that it's okay for the state to have a, to have a, 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 a guarded border and the person, the trucker couldn't come through. But that once the trucker comes through, the trucker has to abide by every regulatory um, uh, uh, provision that the state has and it can't discriminate. Um, so I think, you know, between what Liza and I said probably is a pretty good assessment of what the commerce power does and what the dormant commerce power would or would not allow. Great. Um, I could just, if I could just return to a question that someone asked earlier, um, because I just did a quick, uh, I had a quick chat with um, the Google and uh, discovered that there uh, is a Denver man who filed a lawsuit challenging a stay-at-home order a few days ago. So there is, and there, there's probably more, but there, yes, it, they, <clears throat> there have been, there has been at least one lawsuit challenging stay-at-home orders. So, um, you know, that'll be interesting to see how that, that pans out. Great. 
Um, how much do we want various uh, travel and movement restrictions to be enforced actively by police and government compared to uh, orders um, that have been basically self-enforced? So the government's putting this out there. It's uh, a law either to stay at home or not to travel, but it's um, not being enforced. This really tends to be more of a guideline in effect. Uh, is um, more advisable than the other, both from a policy and public health standpoint, as well as a legal one? Well, why don't I start um, on the public health side? I mean, I think I do support stay-at-home orders. I prefer them to be advisory rather than compulsory. Um, and if they are compulsory, um, I, I, I would personally look very closely at how, uh, whether there was any draconian enforcement of it. Um, that would worry me um, uh, quite a bit. I think for the most part, um, the uh, public understands the need to shelter in place, will generally cooperate, um, but I wouldn't like to see an armed police presence, um, jail sentences or prison sentences or uh, even massive fines. Um, and I would certainly want to see um, uh, quite reasonable um, exceptions for uh, essential work and essential travel. And I think to the to the question of effectiveness, um, it's interesting. I mean, different different societies are different, different cultures are different. You see, different measures work better or worse in different countries depending on various um, variables. And uh, I think in this country, um, social pressure is likely to be, if anything, the more powerful than the threat that maybe somebody's gonna hand you a ticket while you're out walking on the street. I mean, enforcement is a really difficult thing to do given the rules as they've been constructed. So if you are allowed to go out to go grocery shopping, but you're not allowed to walk to your friend's house um, just to hang out, if a police officer stops you in the street and says, where are you going? You say, well, I'm going to the grocery store. I mean, this is not an easy thing to enforce anyway. So really, I think social pressure is a huge amount of what we're relying on here and what has so far actually been fairly effective, even if not as effective uh, as we would like. Um, and again, that's that's cultural. I think that is something, and it may be true in, in many places for sure, but I think um, in, in the US, there there is some reason to think that non-compulsory measures might in some ways actually be more effective than compulsory measures, which might trigger uh, resistance in some ways. Um, uh, the other thing that I, that I think is very interesting is uh, I was reading a piece that Rachel Kleinfeld posted uh, on, uh, of the Carnegie, Carnegie uh, Institute had, had posted a piece about whether authoritarian governments or democracies actually do better um, when it comes to preventing the spread of or, or addressing coronavirus within their countries. And what she found is that the, the considerations um, that are relevant to how well countries do actually have nothing to do with whether the countries are democracies or autocracies. You can look at both and you can find examples of the countries handling the situation quite well or being very quickly overwhelmed. And she listed some of the factors that did seem to make a difference. And one of the most important things was the level of trust that people in that country have in their government. And the level, the more people trust their government, uh, the more willing they were to comply with measures, whether those measures were compulsory or otherwise. Um, and in the United States, our level of trust in the government is very, very low. So um, that tells you a few things for it. It tells you, first of all, that we're, you know, maybe in a little bit of trouble. 
but also that we might be more reliant on what our neighbors are doing and what our friends are doing and the social pressures um, and the social cohesion that we do have in this country. Um, it might be a, a stronger influence than what the government either asks us or orders us to do. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very interesting to see those international comparisons. I know from a public health point of view, it's absolutely right. I've often said that um, gaining the public's trust is the most fundamental um, measure of how well we do um, with health issues. I would hope that in the United States, the level of trust for state and local public health agencies might be higher than they would generally for government. I don't know, but I would really hope that that's the case. I think we do have, by and large, really good, dedicated um, uh, civil servants in our in our public health uh, 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 our public health service, both federally and and, and particularly state and local. Um, and there there's a there there was some good data before COVID that actually high levels of democracy and freedom correlate better with health, not worse. Um, and you can see examples in very, very different ways. So for example, South Korea is a reasonable liberal democracy. It's done, it's, it's done perhaps the best of any country. China you know, was able to build you know, 2,000 bed hospitals in a week, um, but it delayed for probably four to six weeks before um, reporting the virus to WHO and it um, punished whistleblowers, um, stifled the press um, uh, and others, which I think was a real, um, real impediment. I think if we wanted to look at some of the United States' strengths and weaknesses, one of the more interesting you know, debates, it's got both health and constitutional and social implications is, you know, is, is federalism helping us or hurting us? And I think there's probably some arguments on both sides. Great. Um, we're approaching the hour, so I want to just get in one more question um, before we have to go. Uh, unlike in internal travel restrictions that are required to meet a strict scrutiny standard, restrictions on travel by foreigners or immigrants is governed by uh, plenary powers. So is there really any limit to what the government can do in terms of limiting external travel in these types of situations? or? Um, does the government effectively have carte blanche for restrictions um, coming in from outside of the country? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've written an article on this, so I, I guess I could just have a, a quick go and then... Um, the, the, um, the, clearly, the president's power at the border is much stronger. You, know, you could see that in the Supreme Court's quite unfortunate decisions around immigration and things like that, or sanctuary cities. Um, and certainly, uh, the president has, has extensive um, uh, quarantine powers. But still, um, if you look at um, CDC quarantine rule, it, it does require some kind of individualized determination, uh, some kind of due process, although not as much as I would like to see. Um, and so, you know, the president can't ban a U.S. national, for example, from coming into the country, but might be able to quarantine that person. But so far, um, all of the travel bans um, that have been put 
uh, at the southern border, at the northern border, closing it down, um, Europe, uh, China, Asia, Iran. I haven't seen the, these challenged. Um, many of them aren't particularly supported by public health um, uh, evidence. Um, and so I've always worried about them. Arguably, they do violate the international health regulations, which is a treaty obligation of the United States. Um, but so far, um, the president has been exercising this power with carte blanche and kind of sorry to say so of other countries around the world. It's been, it's, it's, it's really been jaw dropping to see borders close so quickly and so definitively and so widely. Yeah, I, I would just add to that. I mean, if the president, if the president is acting not under the PHSA, but under the Immigration and Naturalization Act, um, <clears throat> and is uh, sorry, Nationality Act, and is uh, imposing a travel ban essentially under his authority to determine that granting entry to a class of persons is not in the interest of the United States or goes against the interest of the United States. I mean. We saw in the Muslim ban uh, challenge in the Supreme Court that it is effectively impossible um, to uh, to challenge that. Essentially, I mean, I shouldn't say that because you know the Brennan Center is still involved in a lawsuit, which is not and it's disgraceful, <laughs> ongoing. But but shall we say that the president? I mean, I think it's safe to say that the president has extraordinarily broad authority to decide not to deny entry to uh, foreign nationals. Coming in from trying to come in from out of the country. Um, closing the border is something that is an interesting question because um, this was done under a provision of law that allows the closure of particular ports of entry um, at the border and it's, it's meant to respond to conditions around that port, port of entry. It has not previously been used to shut down the entire border so this is also unprecedented and, and uh, it's and not really clear whether in fact the president had the legal authority to do that so um you should challenge it well i am sure someone has i really i am, I am absolutely sure somebody has challenged that so um because, because as you said i think it's not it doesn't even even you know the the, the stay-at-home orders i think that's something people understand they understand why they need to do it but at the same time i think a lot of people get that closing the border with mexico is not Probably not a public health measure. I think people get that. I mean, there's, or maybe not. But anyway, my guess is I, I would almost guarantee that that has, that there are. Yeah, and I would just close by saying, you know, whether the, pre, you know, the president has broad immigration power, broad public health power at the border, um, but it worries me a real lot. I can't even, you know, overstate this how the president continuously seems to conflate immigration policy with public health policy. Um, and I think that's why many of us, uh, you know, worry considerably about, you know, what's driving some of these decisions. Right. Um, well, I could ask you guys about this stuff all day, um, but we are at uh, uh, the end of our 2 p.m. So um, I want to thank everyone who, uh, logged in to uh, listen today. I really want to thank our speakers for a phenomenal and incredibly um, informative chat. This was um, really fantastic. We're hoping that we're going to be able to keep doing this on you know, various civil liberties topics that are being influenced by the current situation. So uh, stay tuned um, and everyone please uh, stay safe out there.
Thank you very much.